experience is where the high street is. Transaction is clearly moving online. Quite fun. Every year, the team basically designs a pickle, which is a personification of us, us a new recipe, uh, and then that's what we give to our clients for Christmas. You are listening to Changing Careers, a podcast about how MBA careers are changing and how MBAs change their careers. I am Conrad Chua. When our next guest started their MBAs more than 10 years ago, they had no idea they would be graduating into the worst financial and economic crisis for decades. So what did they do? Borrow money from a bank to start a pop-up store selling Marmite, of course. Rupert Pick wanted to move out of his Unilever FMCG background. Patrick Hammond came from the performing arts and wanted to start a business. Fast forward to the present day, and Hot Pickle is a thriving brand consultancy with very specific ideas about the use of experiences in brand marketing. Rupert and Patrick are going to take us on a fascinating journey of how two MBAs brought experience marketing to a then-skeptical industry and subsequently built their business. First, I asked Patrick, how did Hot Pickle get started? Well, the, I mean, the idea was as simple as uh, Rue coming and saying, I want to launch a pop-up shop for Marmite. There was no great plan, uh, and it certainly wasn't a plan that looked anything like what we're doing now. It was, it was more of a project of let's go do this. Um, we might make some money, we might not, but we were coming out of that student mentality when you're used to sort of living <laughs> on the edge anyway. So um, that was our viewpoint. It was probably, it was, it was during the summer it was to Christmas, and let's see if we can get this thing going and see what a pop-up shop might do. So why Marmite? I used to be the Marmite brand manager. Uh was at Unilever, post Unilever, in between Unilever and, and the MBA, I worked with a consultancy called What If. And I wanted to try my hand at a sort of entrepreneurism. So I, I convinced Unilever to give me the license, the brand license to the, to the brand uh, and developed a bunch of merchandise off the back of that, which I was running in parallel to doing my MBA. So we had access to a brand and we had access to product, uh, the kind of, I guess the, the logical extension of that was to build a shop because there wasn't really a shop and there was a bit of an online store, but not in the same way uh, there is now. So, um, yeah, I mean, to, to Pat's point, we just, we went, let's do this as a kind of project. And I, I remember, actually, I remember the conversation it was in a greasy spoon on Mill Road, wasn't it? Um, where we kind of shared the idea with a third partner of ours, a guy called Barkley Rogers, who was also on the NBA. Um, and we didn't, we didn't spend too long discussing it. Uh, we did a, a few numbers, but it wasn't some sort of great uh, uh, sort of corporate strategy. We said, let's do, do this project. Let's see where it takes. What were your expectations? Were you trying to hit a sales target or was it more important just to get brand recognition? Uh, we were trying not to lose money <laughs> in, a simple, in a simple form. I mean, the, the, the interesting here is we weren't, we weren't paid by Unilever to do it, the owners of, of of Marmot. So all the risks sat with us. Uh, they'd given their blessing, but it wasn't costing them a cent. So we were, in fact, driving awareness for their brand at our cost. So we were operating entirely as a retailer. Uh, and in a very short period of time, we're trying to sell enough product to make a turn, uh, which we did do um, through quite a lot of graft. Um, and that was really the, 
the objective. And it was more of a learning exercise and, and make sure we don't lose our, our cash. And to give you a sense of scale, I mean, we started with a £40,000 loan from NatWest. You know, that, that's how we got going. It was not a grand scheme beyond that. I think NatWest gave us all of seven weeks to pay them back, which we did, which was great. But I think in the scheme of Cambridge, where they, you know, we heard about a lot of people starting, you know, businesses in a very different way. Um, we started very kind of bootstrapped. Where was this pop-up store? I was on Regent Street. So, I mean, that was the... This is Regent Street in, in, London. in London. Yeah, yeah. And how big was this? Paint us a picture of the store. Yeah. Um, at the time, in uh, sort of Christmas time 2009, it was pretty revolutionary, I think, looking back on it. So it, Regent Street's probably the premier shopping street in London, one of in the world. We had about uh, 1,500 square feet split over two, two stores, uh, sorry, two floors. Um, and it was full, Marmite as a brand is quite wacky, it's quite colorful, it doesn't take itself, itself too seriously, and our store certainly didn't. You know, we had mannequins in the window who were having tea with each other with tea cozies on their head. Um, it was sort of ridiculous, as you would expect from a store selling only Marmite. You know, that thought never existed, and I think the thing we heard the most from anybody was, wow, Marmite has a store. Why you think of Marmite as being something you buy in the grocery store? Um, so we were quite boldly out there, I think, in a different way. And, and there's a lot of latent love for the brand. So we really were able to kind of uh, pick up on that. So the pop-up store was a success. You guys did not lose money. How did you go from there to where you are now, where you have more than 20 people and lots of projects? I mean, Step by step, really. So we did Marmite in a similar fashion for the next year, where we partnered with uh, Selfridges. Um, and so it was a sort of another year of hard graft in, in that sense. Um, and it was, it was only after that year that we started to turn the dial into being more of a consultancy business. A few other uh, Unilever brands called us. Uh, one of the first was My, their mustard. Uh, Vaseline was a very early one, all Unilever brands. And that sort of step-by-step and project-by-project, we sort of built. We've always built organically from that. So I think it was really, it was only after another year, really, that it really started to to build and to, and to grow. Um, and, you know, one successful project leads to another, leads to another. Um, and we've always grown in that way. I mean, that was quite, I think that was quite an interesting decision when, we came out of Marmite is Pat and I sat there and said, are we a, are we a Marmite business? Are we a retail business with, you know, one or two properties? Uh, or are we trying to turn ourselves into a creative consultancy that helps other brands develop retail proposition? And, uh, you know, we did the numbers and I think the second year of Marmite showed that you could make a decent return, but actually felt it was more interesting to try and do this for multiple brands and therefore not actually owning the retail operation uh, became the driver then. And it was just about how many, how many more brands could we do this for? And it was a big turning point to get the second brand because the kind of first brand you work for is interesting. It gets you a bit of tension, but actually you need a bit of a portfolio to show you're not a one-trick kind of pony. Uh, and so, you know, getting a couple more from Unilever really helped kind of take the business into the next stage. And, and convince others that uh, 
you know, we were a credible outfit. Marketing is a complex process. Does Hot Pickle focus on one area? We work with creating experiences. So um, physical spaces that people can walk into and engage with the brand as if it was a person. So um, some people call that experiential marketing, which has been a huge growth industry that we've been you know, on that wave with. Um, but creating those spaces and places engage the brand and using those experiences which more and more consumers are crying out for um, as a way to populate a full marketing campaign so creating digital content creating things that people share on Instagram creating ways to engage with influencers um, that's really how our piece of the puzzle fits with a wider brand marketing campaign it's interesting because we sit almost at the nexus between marketing and sales so if you look at some of our uh, work, take the Magnum Pleasure Store, which is an ice cream parlor that we created where people can walk in and personalize their own ice cream, basically make their own Magnum. That's a retail sales channel, so we sell the product. It isn't just a piece of communication, but it's also a communication platform too. So people come in, meet the brand, have an experience, meet brand, brand ambassadors who live and breathe the brand, but they also walk out with a a product which they've paid for and that's distinct from tv ad which you might watch and engage with but you don't part with your money at that particular moment one of the big buzzwords is digital transformation where lots of brands are trying to improve their online experience what is your take on the mix between physical experiential marketing and the digital side of things certainly when we started the, the businesses the two things lived in isolation you know there was you had one your digital marketeers and then you had marketeers you know? Now the two things have to sit together. Um, what we find, I think, is that our job now is critically important to, to building that sort of brand love, that brand empathy. The transactional piece is done online. We are there to deliver the experience, the entertainment. So, you know, people go to shopping centers. I mean, we work a lot with Westfield, for example. 22 million people go to Westfield every year. And people go there for entertainment. They can easily buy that product at home online. That's the transactional piece. So the job of the physical store is to deliver the, the love, the excitement, the entertainment piece. But it has to work in harmony. And the really great retailers now understand that those two things sit alongside each other. So I must be able to go into a store, be able to feel the, the brand fabric, but then also buy then and there. Or I must be able to buy online and be able to pick it up from the store because the store is convenient. So does this mean that high street stores are now showrooms rather than a place where you have to go and buy stuff and the retailer to worry about inventory, warehousing? Uh, absolutely, because I, mean, I think the growth in the high street is in the big flagship. You see more you know, online brands actually creating bricks and mortar stores to be a window into their brand. We work with, with a number of those. So experience is where the high street is transaction is clearly moving online um so that's a, that's a, a sort of big shift in the high street and we've we were part of that shift that's where people go for entertainment um it's where they go for experience and i think with all the growth of digital you still see people who are desirous of experiences and so you know the millennial generation is more places more value on an experience over and above stuff so they're wanting these things 
they're wanting those things that they can share online. So our, the platform we provide of a brand lives in the digital space, but we're providing that content, that thing that you want to go home and tell boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, husband about, and you might share that online. So brands still need that content because otherwise, what do people talk about? It's quite interesting if you, you take one of our key clients, kind of Diageo, they have a job, a very senior job within the business called head of content. So the, the brand is almost like a publisher. So it's got to be able to create content through multiple channels. And we're one of the channels through which they do that. And that is really just about sharing that story and really bringing people into the brand. Not necessarily so they fall in love with the brand, but they just so they really understand what sits behind this personality as well as the product that they're buying. I, th I think one other interesting place, given we work with a lot of consumer goods companies who normally sell their products through intermediaries like a Tesco or uh, you know, a supermarket, we're also helping them explore more direct-to-consumer channels as opposed to going through a supermarket where they're getting big battles with pricing and promotions and they're fighting it out for space. So our clients are all looking at ways to have direct relationships Online is unlocking some of that and using physical spaces as a way to explore that and, and find new routes to market is, a, is, a, is another big part of it. So is there hope for the high street? Absolutely. I, I, I think there's, um, it's, ju it's just changing. And, uh, you know, if I owned a, a business that had 4,000 outlets uh, paying rent and rates all across the country, I'm going to be in a tough way, I think, if we see that in all, I mean, in the papers every single day. But if I'm valuing experience and providing value for people, what people really value, um, then there's, there's, going to be a, there's going to be a role for that. Mill Road, for example, the, the composition of the street just changes. So the, you go from a lot of shops selling stuff into places selling services. So there'll be more hairdressers, there'll be more coffee shops. Uh, there will be laundrettes, there will be uh, more bars, there might, there might be less grocery shops. Um, but there's still a need for people to congregate in a communal sense. And I think that's something as individuals we all want to do. We're not all just going to sit behind our computer desks and order things. I hope that you don't. <laughs> there's a great quote I saw. It was, in, uh, it was a letter to, letter to the editor, and he said, we used to go out shopping and retire home for a cup of tea to relax. Now, we sit at our desk for our shopping and retire to the high street for a cup of tea to relax. And so I think that sort of embodies the shift in a nice way. I think this is why there's so many barbershops in Cambridge. I had no idea there was that much hair to be cut. Moving to the team that you built, what are some of the things that you look for in people and how do you build that kind of creative environment? We have quite purposely tried to build a diverse team. And I, I think diversity of thought um, and experience, uh, not the sort of buzzword of diversity, but I think something deeper that says we haven't just gone out and hired a bunch of people from our competitors, let's say, because then we start to look exactly like any other agency that a client could hire. But we have people from the performing arts background from um, lots of different areas, different parts of, of commerce, to try and bring together uh, some interesting viewpoints. Um, and we've done that quite consciously over the years. Uh, and then I think the other big thing is, is curiosity. Someone who's cur curious um, and given, uh, given what we do is we're helping clients create 
brand new things. So we're, you know, we're not punching out the same product every time. We might be creating an ice cream experience one day and a gin experience the next day. You need to be engaged and curious to manage that shift. And it's a totally different consumer group we're talking to, totally different brand, totally different tone of voice, totally different product we're working on. I was at a workshop earlier this week talking about deodorants and skin cleansing. So it's a completely different uh, set of thoughts and how we want to engage with consumers. And uh, that's the fascinating bit. Uh, and I think staying curious is kind of what enables you to, to manage that. But how do you look for curiosity? I think you... So it, it's, it's a difficult one to recruit by, but I think it's quite obvious in when you meet people and you start having a conversation. And we often set a test as part of our kind of recruitment process where we get them to do a presentation uh, either about something that they love or, or a brand uh, that we, we set a, a task associated with. And you can start to tell very quickly, I think, if people have got that sort of broad-minded view because uh, they start drawing on uh, associations from different places and, and, and places obviously sur- often surprising to where they might have come from. You know, there's a, definitely a diversity in them in the kind of cohort of, of the people who work here. But I think there's a commonality in their values. I think the one thing we have learned is we have a really strong culture. Um, there's, a, there's a really down-to-earth nature to everyone who works here. Uh, everyone really does get stuck in. Um, and that's very common across the board, whether you've come from a corporate background or a performing arts background. And that's something we, we're pretty sort of strong about and, and clear about. If you had to build a pop-up store for Hot Pickle, what would it look like? Uh, I'm going to give a, I'm gonna give a uh, easy answer out that I think they're littered all over the high street. I think it, it's, it's exciting. It's something different. It's something fun. We work in food, ice cream, beer, gin. These are really fun categories, so we don't need to take ourselves too seriously. It's about enjoying life. Um, and behind it is a whole bunch of people working really hard, working as a team. And I think what's also fascinating about the work we do, it spans so many disciplines from design um, to, to running the space and the operations and the staffing required to marketing strategy to commercials. So I think that embodies who we are. So I'm going to take the cheap way out and say there's examples on the high street already of our pop-up. We do every Christmas, we do make a pickle. And every, every, every uh, meeting I go to a new, in a new office and I say I'm from Hot Pickle, they say, oh, so where do we buy your product from? And I'm like, no, I work for an agency, et cetera, et cetera. So um, one of these years, maybe we'll have a pickle shop uh, because it's quite fun. Every year, the team basically designs a pickle, which is a personification of us, uh, us a new recipe, uh, and then that's what we give to our clients for Christmas. So pickle shop around the corner. Has the growth of Hot Pickle been smooth or were there ups and downs? Yeah. So, no, it hasn't been you know, perfectly smooth. We, we have grown sort of organically over the last, um, uh, last nine years. There's been no kind of crazy shifts and then and falls. Uh, we took a bit of time to get going. I think we took you know, at least three or four years to really work out what we were about. Uh, and then it took a big kicker up. Uh, really at the time that we did Magnum, the Magnum Pleasure Store was 
really our sort of poster project and then it's and then it's grown nice and steadily since then we had another part to the business we had a licensing part as well as an, an experience uh, side to it which did a nice bit of business but never really grew at quite the pace we wanted it to do and actually shifting out of that has been fa fabulous it just focused all our minds because we have a third partner in the business who had kind of focused on that area and now he's fully involved in the rest of the business and i think it's given us focused and a, and, a, and a concentration around one thing that we do and we do it really well. Rupert, I know that in the course of building Hot Pickle, you experienced something very traumatic on the personal side and you've started a, another business. Could you talk about work for good? I mean, it's, it's interesting because you know, not just me, me, uh, I've experienced, you know, some challenges. Pat has had some too. And I think uh, when you're, when you're in, in business and kind of focus on the on the business and then suddenly something happens sort of pretty traumatic in your life you do sort of, sort of reflect and think god what are, what am i doing here and on the one hand i'm sort of selling ice cream on the other hand i'm dealing with a child who's very sick in hospital and and the the, the result of that is i started to think about how i could give back um and i with a, with the support of the guys is went about and set up work for good which is a um fundraising platform but really, I kind of describe it as the uh, the corporate version of just giving. It's designed to encourage small and medium-sized enterprises to give, but make it part of their kind of daily business. Um, it's now run as a separate organization, actually run by uh, a guy called Danny Witter, and I sit really as a kind of chairman role now. Um, uh, so they're very different entities, um, but uh, equally enjoyable. Um, and I think the, the the biggest thing, the most satisfying thing of, of both of them is just the, the individuals I get to work with. Uh, that's the commonality. Uh, and, and Work for Good also is a, is a marketing vehicle. So there is some similarities in the, in the types of business or the, or the work that we're trying to do. How did the two of you work together? It shapes, I think, as the years go by. I mean, the first couple of years we were, uh, I mean, for a while we lived together. You know, we spent every working hour together. Um, Christmases, Thanksgivings, all the rest. And we've both got young families. Life is pretty busy outside of work as well as inside of work. And I think it's, as the business has grown, figuring out the best way to deploy ourselves is a constant discussion. So where are our skills? Where do they overlap? Where, where are we best placed? You know, Rue is an amazing sort of networker. Uh, it's not something I really enjoy or, or necessarily am good at. So we're trying to figure out the best way to do that as well as do everything else that needs to happen in the business. Um, so I think it's a, constant, it's a constant discussion, negotiation. Sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. Um, but as the business grows, and that, that's, a, that's, that's part of it. And then I think the other big thing as we've gotten bigger as a business is it's, it's hard work and a constant discussion to make sure we leave space for our team. Because that's the crucial piece now is we've got real skills in the team, real experience. Um, so how do we give them the pathways to grow and take ownership and, and sort of break this thought of it's our business. How do, we, how do we give them the space to grow, make mistakes, teach us things? You know, all that stuff is part of a sort of growth curve as people and as a business, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I echo a lot of what Pat said. I mean, there is, there is a real challenge because you start up do, start off doing everything together. I mean, you know, 
it's they call you know work, running a business being in a marriage it really is you literally spend every waking hour with it and more and then suddenly as you grow you start to find that you can't spend all the time together you can't be sharing every single problem every single challenge and that's i find that one, one of the hardest things because i was i enjoy the time i spend with pat you know i when we're discussing ideas and discussing problems that's when we're at our best but as you get bigger you just simply cannot do that so you have to have a a trust and a faith in each other just to get on and do your sort of own specialist pieces of work and and try and find a way that you start to focus on the things that you're really great at you know you as you move away from being a master of everything you have to then son i think become a bit more of a focus operator uh and that's what we do and i think now we've really it's taken us probably nine years but recognize where we're really great at um and let each other just get on and do it and then come together when we can um to because we do to share the same challenges and the problems of the of the business as a whole uh and those are the kind of bonding moments actually and and i and my hat's off to people who manage to do it on their own because i, I couldn't so pat said you're a great networker what is pat great at well i mean it's it's very interesting so i'm i'm a little unstructured uh probably a little impulsive pat is very rational very ordered, very structured, uh, very good at keeping us to, to task. Uh, so, you know, we're a nice combination. I mean, the interesting thing is Pat's also very creative. So, uh, you know, it's not a question of one of us is, you know, the creative uh, in, this, in this business. But we are different, you know. Uh, I'm probably more extrovert than he is. Uh, but it makes for a nice combination. And actually, frankly... When we, when we think about the team, that's what we look for in the team. We don't have 25 people who are extroverts or 25 people who are introverts. We want a mixture of personalities. Uh, and that makes the kind of relationship work. If both of you could time travel back to when you were in business school, what would you tell the Patrick Hammond and Rupert Pick of 2008? Uh, I think two pieces of advice that we actually got at that time that I think have only more and more true as time has gone by. Um, one was from, from Dennis Stevenson, who was a great supporter of our business in the early days, who really encouraged us uh, and encouraged, I think, our whole cohort um, to look for business opportunity, not necessarily in all the sexy things. But he said, find a place, follow your nose. It might be a, a better way to empty the trash, you know, something that's not necessarily the next Google or the next Amazon. And if you can find that niche in the market, and follow your nose, that's where opportunity lies. And I think that's what we've done. Um, so that encouragement to just get going and don't worry about having everything planned out perfectly on a page because the page will be wrong anyway. So there's value and the energy comes from the thing itself. Um, so that would be one thing. And then the other would be uh, from a, from another businessman, the guy who started Streetcar, who said, just as soon as um, you think you've got it all worked out, something else will happen that you have to figure out. And that just keeps proving true. It's a constant battle. And if you, if you really enjoy that battle, it's a great way to make a living and it's a great way to kind of structure a life. Um, but there's never a day when you say, it's all sorted, it's all worked out, we can just put our feet up because there's always, there's always the next thing. Yeah, I think very similar. I think um, you go to do an MBA because you, or certainly I was looking for answers and almost looking for the confidence. And it gives you 
a lot of the sort of foundation skills and the techniques uh, and a bit of the confidence too and the network, which I think is hugely helpful. Uh, but you also do just need to just go for it, yeah, uh, and throw yourself into it. And, and no book is going to provide you with uh, a cast iron guarantee that things are going to work. Um, uh, and I think the other thing is, the other thing I've learned is it's so helpful to have people around you. You know, whether I'm lucky, I've got business partners. I, I, God, I couldn't do it on my own. Uh, but, you know, we've drawn, Pat and I have drawn on some of our classmates at times uh, for procurement ideas or finance or corporate finance or, you know, I mean, all, all types of uh, uh, pieces of advice. So that, that, I think, surround yourself with people who, who are going to help you believe in you because um, that makes a big difference. Because, you know, it's lonely being an entrepreneur. Um, you know, I spent 15 years with a boss helping me and then suddenly you find you are the boss and there's no one else helping you. So uh, that's the one piece of advice, yeah. Some valuable life lessons there. I was grateful to Pat and Rupert to talk to me about how they built Hot Pickle. I learned a lot about experience marketing and how you can build a business even in the bleakest of economic outlooks. You can listen to this show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, subscribe if you've not done so. If you've already subscribed, thank you so much. I just have one more favour from you. Please share this with someone you know who would benefit from listening. Also, leave a rating and review. It helps others discover this show. I'm also on Instagram, where you can find behind-the-scenes look at these podcasts and some of the issues we explore. My Instagram account is ChuaKH. That's C-H-U-A-K-H. I also post on the Cambridge MBA Instagram account, where the account is Cambridge underscore MBA. So that's Cambridge underscore MBA. As always, I'm also on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is at Conrad Chua 16. So Conrad Chua 16. Love to hear from you. Uh, give me any comments that you have about the show or any ideas for things that we could explore in subsequent episodes. Till next time, this is Conrad Chua on Changing Careers. <laughs>